Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Harbury's Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at HL. And I'm here with Sarah Coles, our Personal Finance Analyst. Hello, Sarah. Great to be back on the HL airwaves again. It does make a change, doesn't it, from being the guest on other broadcaster shows? Yes, it does. It really does. And uh, my husband will tell you, I am much happier in the driving seat than as a passenger. Well, talking about driving, in this episode, we're starting with a sector that's been headlining the news all over the place and it's absolutely crucial to the smooth running of so many businesses yes we're talking logistics in an episode we're calling logistical nightmares so we'll take a look at the challenges of getting our favorite products onto the shelves including really crucial things like prosecco and pigs in blankets by christmas yes even john lewis is so concerned about getting hold of enough baubles and presents for under the tree that it's chartering a fleet of ships by its freight partner to try and get the goods on time because it's really been a perfect storm of bottlenecks at ports, shortages of components and raw materials, and of course, the lorry driver shortage, which are all coming together to create a headache of epic proportions for many supply chains. We'll be speaking to Tom Reddy, who's just about to walk away from lorry driving and can tell us what it's been like at the centre of the shortage and why more and more people are leaving the job. Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I hope you're getting to enjoy more time at home now and less time enjoying the delights of the UK's laybys. Yeah, I'm getting there slowly, yes. Um, some adjustment to do, but I'll get there. And I'm sure you're going to be pleased you won't have so many early starts. A 4.31, I understand, this morning. Looking forward to speaking to you a little bit later, Tom. Thank you, Susanna. Yes, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely cover on to plenty early starts. We're also going to be speaking to Sophie Lund-Yates, a senior equity analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, who's been looking in depth at this sector about the broader themes dominating the market, the future of the logistics sector, and a couple of interesting stocks to watch in this space. Yes. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on again. Bit of an understatement to say that there's a lot to talk about here. It's, um, as you said, and absolute perfect storm and it's really shaking quite a few sectors up so yeah looking forward to digging into that a bit deeper thanks sophie and we'll be catching up with our head of investment research emma wall who'll be talking to fund manager jakob de tuschleck from artemis fund managers about which sectors have been hit the hardest by the restrictions of the movement of goods and people and as ever we're going to be finishing with a quiz well testing Sarah on her knowledge of the more unusual things being off to staff by firms battling to fill vacancies. But first, before we roll up our sleeves and open the bonnet of the logistics business, let's have a look back at one of the big stories of last week, the latest housing market figures. Sales have been falling, but just what's been happening to prices, Sarah? Yes, well, when stamp duty relief tapered at the end of June, we really saw property sales tumble. Sales fell by almost two thirds in July, but prices have only pulled back slightly from June's record highs. So statistics out last week from the ONS showed that prices were still up 8% in the year to July. 8%. Is this a, a race for space that's helping hold prices up, do you think? I mean, the fact that so many people have reassessed how they live and how they work during the pandemic and want more room. I mean, I've certainly had to carve out a few more obscure working arrangements in my house, including this tiny Harry Potter-esque hole under the stairs, which doubles up as my radio studio and boot room. Oh, it's, it's very glamorous. Um, it, that, it is a big part of it, but there are other forces at play in the market. So we've got mortgage rates, which are near record lows, which makes moves much more affordable. And it's helping a larger percentage of first-time buyers into the market. Um, at the same time, there's a real shortage of properties for sale and this imbalance, which is meaning more buyers chasing fewer properties, which is really pushing the prices up. 
And then further down the line, we have construction issues to worry about. Yes, the latest reading on the construction industry isn't pretty, is it? I mean, it shows, these are figures from the Office for National Statistics, that in July, the sector contracted for the fourth month in a row. And another closely watched survey indicated that although there were still signs of growth in the sector in August, it was a marked slowdown from July and that firms are increasingly being hit with a supply squeeze. So more than eight out of 10 firms questioned by the Market PMI Purchasing Managers Index said that they were paying more for supplies in August. So, you know, Sarah, demand may well be there, but with all of these supply chain issues causing such headaches, there is an increasing pressure on price, isn't there? And, and availability, which could lead to delays going forward. Yes, and it's, it's not just a shortage of supplies. There's serious labour shortages as well. So we've had warnings thick and fast about the squeeze in labour market conditions right across the board and how it will affect companies. And it's causing some real problems, isn't it? Yeah, the industry lobby group, the Confederation of British Industries, has been warning that the labour shortages could last two years and certainly won't be solved by the end of the furlough scheme, although plenty more people are expected to join the search for works. Lot simply won't be a good fit for the surge in vacancies out there due to the mismatch or, or sheer absence of the skills needed. So what does all of this mean for the economy? So presumably this will start to put wage costs up, won't it? Well, there are really serious concerns about wage increases. Uh, warnings come from the CBI about this. And the real concern is that they won't be temporary, which could mean interest rates might have to go up sooner rather than later to try and keep a lid on further price rises. So the Bank of England had predicted that these inflationary pressures won't hang around. But Michael Saunders, who's one member of the bank's influential monetary policy committee who vote to set interest rates. He, well, he stuck his neck out to say a rise in borrowing costs could be warranted before the end of 2022 if the UK's economic recovery from lockdown is maintained and the rate of inflation sticks at elevated levels. But there are other committee members who don't agree. But one thing we can be sure of is that there is going to be some really healthy debate around that committee meeting table every single month. Yes, and they'll be watching labour costs closely, won't they? I mean, one area where wages are said to be soaring as a result of labour shortages is in logistics. And one man who really understands problems in the industry is Tom Reddy, who spent years in the business. Welcome, Tom. I'm really pleased to say Tom's with us now on the podcast. And Tom, we're hearing that Brexit has really been a big cause of the current shortage. Do you think leaving the EU has made a systemic shortage even worse? I think it really has. Um, as you mentioned earlier, we're seeing the a combination of factors come together in kind of a perfect storm, but Brexit was the final piece in the puzzle that caused a real problem for the industry. So we've lost a lot of our migrant workforce who, unknown to a lot of people, our lorry driver workforce is made up hugely of non-UK drivers. A lot of them have decided to go home or have had to go home, and now we're left with a huge gap in the industry, and they think the shortage is 90,000 to 100,000 driver positions unfilled at the moment. It's a huge number. So they're unfilled, okay, but we're hearing at the same time that there are people coming off furlough, there are certainly uh, wage rises going on in the industry, it's looking even more attractive, but let's lift the lid. What are conditions actually like? I mean, why can't younger British drivers fill the gaps or why don't they want to? Yeah, again, this is there's many varying factors to this people may not be aware of, but the cost of entry is really, really high um, in order to get the licence to even begin. You're looking at three to four thousand pounds and the training costs there's a backlog in the system we don't have a huge training capacity in in the uk because it's diminished due to decreasing demand for it so you have to come up with that money and and find the slot and then the job itself is very very old-fashioned in the kind of long hours and conditions you're expected to work in 
and um, it can come as a shock to a lot of people so the attrition rate becomes very high they'll go into it and find hang on I don't really want to work 15 hours every day that sort of thing so they step away from it we have a lot of license holders in this country who have the license but choose not to work in the industry for these reasons so that's another huge factor how did you get into it um a bit of a, <laughs> a happy accident or the lost and the damned depending on how you want to look at it i came out of the forces um, when i was around 21 22 and i was a bit lost as to what to do next as so many people ex-armed forces find themselves in this position and so i ended up driving a van in central london for a laundry and uh, it kind of went from there. That was my first exposure to kind of heavy goods vehicles. And uh, I just got a bit of a taste for it. They do say it tends to get under your skin. And I always resisted that idea, but it se there seems to be something in it. So I just went through the licenses um, one at a time. And, and that brought me to sort of the last 10 or 15 years experience. So you say it got under your skin then. Why are you planning to give it all up and leave the industry altogether? Um, I, I, so I think I've just... Part of it is I feel like I've done enough of it. A lot of it is the working conditions. I was single at the time, which is which is perfect for that sort of job where you're going to be away a lot. Um, but now I have a partner and her two daughters and I want to spend time with them. And the driving job does not allow for that at all. And yeah, even that relatively young age by industry standards, I'm beginning to feel it in my kind of body and health. It's It's a really physical job and I'm just a bit kind of tired and a bit broken from it and so I, I realize this position of privilege because the problem we have in the industry is this sort of glass ceiling where you're well paid um, but it's very difficult to step away and do anything else because you're not qualified to do anything else and so I, I appreciate I'm lucky in that respect I'm able to go and do other things not many drivers find themselves in that position. So I've been following your Twitter feed at The Lorryist and you've been doing a day in the life to show what is actually involved in, in lorry driving and it's really fascinating so what surprised people about your day? Oh, thank you. That's I've worked really hard on that to kind of bring people along because I think the key to understanding the industry is just seeing what's involved day to day. Um, I think the long hours is, has been a shock to people, even though we talk about long hours and I, I really resist the idea of long hours being a badge of honour. It really isn't. It's quite toxic in many ways that we still expect this. Um, so that's been an eye opener for people, but also how, how complex it is. It's not just sitting in a seat driving down the road. You have to make everything happen. You have to affect the delivery. You have to get into the correct position when you're doing the delivery. You have to take charge of the whole day from beginning to end because you're on your own and no one else is there to really support you. And so it's a, it's the full package. And by the end of the day, you are really, really, well, you're just, you're spent. The feedback from that's been amazing, but I, I, I really see that it's an eye-opener to a lot of people, what we actually do day to day. And, and you know, the times we start and we're getting up in the middle of the night and we're still working long after people have sort of finished their day. And, and so that is, is quite something. So to try to get over the backlog of tests, which have been made worse by holdups during the pandemic, there's talk of making tests simpler and eliminating the requirement for drivers to be tested on reversing. Does that worry you? Yeah, so I have very mixed feelings about the whole revisions to the testing, but it's important to understand that re removing the reversing from the test carried out by the DVSA, the government organisation, and they're proposing to, to move it to be assessed by a third party. We have no idea what shape or form that's going to take yet. So there will be some assessment of the reversing, but I think generally that's a really, really bad idea um, because the, the government organisation, the DVSA, have these standards which have always been really high and we hold them to high esteem in the industry as a matter of pride. And to take them away, it's indicating to people it's not one, it's not important, but also risk of lowering standards. And already it's not a very comprehensive course to pass only a few weeks training and then you pass the test. And 
you've seen on the videos, hopefully an insight into the kind of things we have to do. And I just think it's important not to diffuse that. It's mainly a government led initiative to make the statistics look correct. In my opinion, that's what they're doing there. So they'll say, we've done this much more testing. We've released these extra test slots, but in reality, you're just potentially putting people out there who aren't going to be ready. And you're already not ready when you pass your test. That is just the beginning. And then it's 18 months, two years until you're sort of useful to the industry, if you like. Do you think the solution then is higher wages or recruiting from abroad? It has to be a factor of all these things. But I think, well, the wages increase is just supply and demand doing what it does in, in these circumstances. We have a shortage, so the wages automatically go up and the large corporate companies can afford to to pay this to keep the supplies going where they need to go, the supermarkets, etc. What really suffers from that are the small hauliers who then can't afford to compete and they lose their drivers. And so you just get this um, musical chairs effect of the drivers chasing around the best money. So you're still working from a limited pool of drivers and that's not going to change in the short term. So in the short term, we do need to get our migrant workforce back and we need to do that by allowing them to come and work here, which currently they can't. Um, the government has refused point blank to add them to the uh, shortage occupation list, which I think is a huge mistake. And uh, that would relieve some of the pressure if indeed they even wanted to come back. But the first stage is, is making it possible for them to do so. Then in the long term, I think we need to look at the industry kind of more broadly and think about people don't want to work these hours. So why do we still push it? Why are we in such a hurry for all our, our goods? Same day in some cases. It's, we all got ourselves in this big hurry and the industry's adapted because that's what it does so well. And I've seen that over the past 15 years, but we never stop to think why and the hidden part of it is hopefully what I've illustrated a bit with that day in the life is this is what we have to do now to keep up. And it's asking a lot of people and people aren't going to want to do it. Not not in the 21st century. It's, it's a dying profession in many ways. Do you think there's any way that young people can be persuaded to consider driving as a, as a career? There's lots of good things about it. We tend to focus on the negative, well, because we're British and that's what we do. But there's a lot of appealing aspects to the job if we could just tweak it a little bit. So start with the working hours, bring those down and the government could regulate that because the hours are regulated. All they would have to do. So we're going to reduce the maximum working hours. And overnight, then you might get people interested because they will have be able to have a life alongside of it. Um, even down to 12 hours would come down from 15. That would be better. Um, if you're the right sort of person, there's lots of opportunity. It's a bit of an adventure. It's good if you like working on your own and you're independent and you like just taking charge of things. Um, so there's lots of people like this. You also need to think about the insurance problem because new drivers particularly can't get insured. It's a real problem in the industry and maybe that could be funded by the government. Maybe they could reduce, eliminate VAT on training, for example. That would cut away 20% of the cost of training straight away. So all these things they could do, a number of things that they are actually doing. Thank you, Tom. We will be following your journey very closely. It's really interesting to have your insights on Switch Your Money On. I do think we all need a big dose of patience, don't we? Well, let me bring in Sophie Lund-Yates now. Sophie, the problems that Tom has been outlining are hitting companies right across the board, aren't they? Tell me what strategies they're adopting to cope. Yes. So as Tom was just touching on, the kind of the crux of the issue is that companies are in a great deal of ways really limited in what they can do when it comes to these shortages. Um, the biggest tool in their armory, again, as Tom was saying, really is kind of those incentives. And 
you know, we're seeing signing on bonuses and significant pay rises to help with recruitment and more crucially retention, because um, that's an even better tool than, than recruitment in the first place. And that will help to some degree. But what happens, what we're seeing is that it's really going to separate the strong from the weak. So only those bigger companies who have enough cash sitting around and enough financial resilience um, to afford to pay those big bonuses um, and whatever other incentives they, they kind of cook up uh, are going to be successful or more successful in recruiting at the moment. Um, and even then, the problem, it, it's not fixed. Um, as Tom was mentioning, this is a chronic and a long-term problem. Um, the gap isn't going to be fully plugged by the measures that we're seeing. You know, this is just the start of really quite a bumpy ride, in my opinion. And as far as individual companies are concerned, how are they coping with this? Yeah, so again, a bit mixed. And um, as we all know, we are kind of right in the start of, of this, this journey, as it were. Um, so we're having the odd warning coming out here and there, but the actual um, the nuts and bolts of what it's going to mean over the long term really hasn't kind of been fully shaken out yet. A lot of it is hearsay um, in terms of what that means, for maybe full year financial numbers and, and stuff like that. For me, I think a really interesting one um, when we're looking at the, the labour and supply crisis is, is Acardo. So they had a, a trading statement out um, a few days ago talking about their retail operation, you know, 50% owned by M&S. They warned that higher labour costs are going to cost up to £5 million um, in this financial year. And if you think about it, you know, they really pride themselves on being a more premium grocer compared to others. So disruption to their delivery schedules, because they were warning about um, a shortage of, of delivery drivers, um, as well as not being able to find the right stock, I think could hurt their revenue more so than for other grocers that maybe aren't quite so premium. On the other side of that, we've also got um, Unilever. So we think about this. So this number is huge. 2.5 billion people use a Unilever product every single day. So their importance to the global supply chain, it, you, you, can't, you can't overstate it. And they were able to navigate coronavirus disruption really quite remarkably well because of that importance. So when it comes to negotiating or lobbying, whatever it might be, um, their huge scale means that they're in you know, probably a better position than, than many, although that is always to be kind of offset with the fact that we don't know how bad this is going to get but really I'd say that they're in a, a relatively better spot compared to a lot of the smaller players. Okay Sophie thank you so much for talking us through that and the effect on individual companies. We do also like to get down to the fundamentals in this podcast and talk about the big concepts fund managers hold in mind when putting together their pick. So Emma Wall is our head of investment research and she's been talking to fund manager Jakob de Tuchlek from Artemis Fund Managers about whether the events of the last year might have permanently altered the investment case for some companies. It's been an interesting few years for someone like you, a global fund manager at Artemis. Thinking then about the combined headwinds of coronavirus and Brexit, what impact has that had on global trade? The disruptions are really widespread and have sort of moved from sector to sector over the last six months. And a lot of it has to do with computer chips, memory and chips that goes into a lot of products today. Even sort of old economy things like cars are very heavily reliant. A lot of the content in a car today is electronics. And there's that old joke that it takes 1500 parts to build a car and one missing part not to build a car. Well, that's what we're seeing right now. Manufacturers can't get the right microchip for the car. And we're seeing in the US that output of cars is down 10, 15, 20%. And demand 
is there and therefore we are seeing prices of secondhand cars, used cars going up dramatically. We're seeing uh, things like computer consoles, uh, gaming consoles go up a lot because there's a shortage of it. You know, in the beginning, manufacturers could kind of use their inventory, shift stuff around from one factory to another. But the fact that there is demand for certain things and enough supply for the first time in years, we're seeing this lead to increased prices. And obviously, it's very interesting to see which companies actually have pricing power, who can pass it on to their customers, who can't pass it on to their customers. The debate right now is also how much of it will stick how much of it will just go away when things revert, but how much of it is here to stay. And obviously those companies that can keep the price increases and use it proactively to take market share, they will come out of this stronger. For those companies that are suffering right now, the discussion is around what is the right inventory levels, because after 20 years of globalization, 30 years of globalization, where supply chains are all about just-in-time, lean production, don't have the part inventory until you need it. All that just-in-time supply, now there is talk about just-in-case supply, have a second source of supply, have more inventory. And that, to some extent, means higher cost of doing business. You need to run more inventory and have more capital tied up in this. So there clearly are winners and losers from these disruptions that we're seeing. Now, you've sort of touched on it there, but I'm really interested in the sectors that have been most hit by this. I mean, in guessing it's retail, we've all seen the headlines recently about the shortages on shelves, but it is also more widespread than that, isn't it? Over the last couple of years, we've seen huge disruptions, not just COVID, or Brexit before that, but also the whole trade war between Trump and China over the last four years. Uh, Then we had the famous tanker being stuck in the Suez Canal, leading to massive disruptions as well. And the spillover effects have really been big and they still impact the global economy and and financial markets. What's surprising is not so much the real-time effects. We can observe container boxes being in the wrong places, being empty in some places, full in others. We've observed container shipping rates skyrocket, ports being full, tankers waiting outside, can't get into the ports, shortages of peanut butter and uh, coffee prices at four-year highs. All that is happening. But the real surprise is that the disruption has not in any way abated or reverted to normal. Every month we think things will get closer to normal, but actually the global supply chain is very complex. It's a very finely tuned network and just too much has changed over the past two years for it to work smoothly right now. And that's why we are seeing this massive disruptions. And some companies are really making a lot of money. Container shipping companies are seeing rates that we haven't seen for years. And, and that disruption, surely, for some companies and for some sectors, has had a permanent impact. And as a global fund manager, you do have the ability to sort of invest almost anywhere. Are there companies or sectors that you're looking at now and thinking, actually, the investment case for them is permanently altered? It's, it's permanently changed. The question, obviously, is when will things revert and will things go back to normal? The companies that we look at and then we like are the ones that are able to use this and get out on the other side in better shape. And a company like Maersk, 
the world's biggest container shipping company. They're saying, well, we're not passing it all on to our customers. We know they're struggling. The retailers might not want to pay through their nose for container capacity. But what we're doing is we're creating three, four-year contracts. So we're telling them, you get the space now on the ship, but you've got to commit. And something like container shipping, which is inherently boom and bust, very cyclical. Well, maybe this is their chance to turn a very cyclical business into a slightly less cyclical business and sort of become a market leader. So that's what we're looking at. We're trying to see which companies can use this and maybe not express the strength in necessarily in the price, but also in the terms of trade that they have with their customers. Jakob, thank you very much. Our head of investment research, Emma Wall, there talking to Jakob de Tuschlek from Artemis Fund Managers. You're listening to Switch Your Money On with me, Susanna Streeter and Sarah Coles. Okay, now it's time for our quiz, which is my favourite bit. So given the welcome bonuses on offer to hauliers, Susanna has been delving into some of the incentive companies are dangling in front of their prospective staff and the things they're offering in an effort to hang on to them. Yes, I've tracked down some weird and wonderful offerings and it's up to you, Sarah, to guess which ones are real and which ones I've made up. So... Is there a company that will give you $2,400 to set up your home office? That sounds like a lot of money. I mean, there's a lot I could do with $2,400 in my home office, but it just sounds like too much. Tell you what, give my little studio here under the stairs a complete makeover. (laughs) Oh, go on then. I'll say it's true. Yes, in fact, it is true. It's the annual allowance available from the web analytics company Hotjar. So your home office could be the nicest place in your home. Number two, what about paternity leave when you get a new puppy? I mean, it sounds like a great idea. I mean, when my puppy was young, I could have done with an allowance for replacing everything she chewed to bits. But it, it sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? That's got to no, be false. No, it's not. It's real. <laughs> that one is offered by the pet food company, oh, Mars no. Pet Care. And I could entertain you with the story of how I once had to dog sit a poorly relative's pet at work and it shot out from under the desk and tried to bite a director's ankle. <laughs> but uh, we're running out of time, so I might have to save the full details for another day. But finally, what about a fridge allowance offering staff a monthly bonus to stock up the fridge with extra snacks when they're working from home? Oh, now you see, this one sounds made up as well, but no more than the other ones. So I'm going to say it's true. No, that one is made up. (laughs) Sorry, Sarah. It would be a nice idea, though, wouldn't it? I twist my husband's arm to do it at the moment. So that is a whistle-stop tour of some of the stranger perks around. I'm off to dream of my $2,400 home office under the stairs. And I'm off to raid the fridge. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on September the 20th and all information was true at the time of recording. Yes, nothing in this podcast is personal advice, so you should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value, so you could get back less than you invest. Yes, this is not advice or recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment, and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. This hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and it's considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosures for more information. 
So all that's left for me is to thank our guests, Tom, Sophie, Emma and Jakob. And this podcast was produced by Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so that you get a new fresh episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye.